welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, welcome to this episode of Arbitral Insights, in which we focus on maritime arbitration to mark World Maritime Day on the 28th of September. I'm Thorma Loof, a partner in the transportation group at Reed Smith, and I'm joined today by my fellow partners, Nick Austin and Antonia Panaides. All of us focus in our practices on maritime arbitration. So what is maritime arbitration? It can be defined as an arbitration dealing with any ship-related disputes, including areas some listeners might not have anticipated. Charter parties, carriage of goods by sea, including bills of lading, contracts of refreightment, and pooling agreements for ships. Carriage of passengers, specialised cargoes, and ship's fuel. Shipbuilding, repairs and refits to ships. Ship sale and purchase. The operations, management, agency and brokerage of ships. Ship casualties like collisions, grounding, salvage and pollution issues, marine insurance. Now, the category extends beyond commodity carrying ships to offshore support vessels like those supporting wind farms, drill rigs, military vessels and other specialised ships like even passenger ferries, cruise ships, yachts and even luxury super yachts. Now, maritime arbitrations are often conducted in London on the LMAA terms. That stands for London Maritime Arbitrators Association. The LMAA was officially founded back in 1960. It was a meeting of arbitrators on the Baltic Exchange approved list. But actually, the roots of the LMAA stretch way back for maybe 300 years and are linked to the Baltic Exchange, which was a historic meeting centre for shipping in London. The LMAA is an association of practicing arbitrators. Because it's not an institution like LCIA, for example, the LMAA doesn't administer arbitration centrally and therefore doesn't charge administrative fees. Instead, parties to LMAA arbitrations agree for their arbitration to be governed by the LMAA terms. That's a set of rules giving the arbitrators powers in addition to those they have under the Arbitration Act. So what's different about maritime arbitrations? To start with, the arbitrators tend to be kind of experts in the subject knowledge of maritime arbitration. They're typically chosen from their familiarity with commercial, technical and legal aspects of this subject matter. So for example, experienced barristers and solicitors, or even judges with a lot of experience in maritime matters, or commercial individuals like shipbrokers or ex-mariners. So when appointing an arbitrator who's a member of the LMAA, you're likely to be selecting someone with quite a lot of understanding of maritime issues. And the result is that parties find it a lot easier and make a lot of savings in time and costs in not having to educate the tribunal on the sometimes technical and niche concepts that are going on in maritime arbitration, like demurrage or general average. Also, it's pretty common for disputes between different parties to raise similar issues of fact and law in maritime arbitration. So, for example, party A hires a ship to party B for 12 months, who in turn hires it to party C for three months, 
who in turn nominates a ship to carry a cargo under a contract of a freightment with Party D. Now, if the vessel is damaged at a port, it's possible that very similar acts of issues of fact and law are relevant to the ensuing disputes between all the parties A to D, notwithstanding their parties to separate agreements. Now, parties to maritime arbitrations typically appreciate a preference to avoid inconsistent decisions being made, and they'll appoint common arbitrators with a view to avoiding that inconsistency. Now, in the 2020 decision in Halliburton and Chubb, the UK Supreme Court flagged the importance of arbitrator impartiality and avoiding perceived or apparent bias. The LMAA intervened in the Supreme Court case and set out its position that such repeat arbitrator appointments are not only commonplace, but also helpful in maritime arbitration as a means of ensuring consistency. Notably, the Supreme Court actually noted in its, expressly in its decision in Halliburton that disclosure by arbitrators of multiple related appointments might not be required in LMA arbitrations because the practice of appointing common arbitrators is known to anybody engaged in these maritime arbitrations. So when it comes to maritime arbitration, disputes between different sets of parties will often raise these common issues of facts and law, and consolidation and concurrency can only be achieved with the agreement of all parties concerned. That agreement can be achieved either in the arbitration clause or the arbitration rules under which the arbitrators are being pursued or by an ad hoc agreement between the parties. Now, the LMAA terms helpfully state that for in these maritime arbitrations, where two or more arbitrations appear to raise a common issue of fact or law, the tribunals can direct that they are conducted or heard concurrently and can give directions to help with that concurrency. Now, the touchstone in deciding whether or not that should be ordered to do with saving time and cost for the parties together with acting fairly as between the parties. Nevertheless, these provisions in the LMAA terms do give LMAA arbitrators very wide discretionary powers to make orders for concurrent hearings and directions that could require parties to one arbitration to disclose evidence to parties in another. That might be a concern in terms of confidentiality to some outsiders looking in, but recall that these powers will only apply where both arbitrations or all the arbitrations in a string are governed by LMAA terms and therefore typically the parties will have agreed already to these terms as part of a maritime arbitration. Thanks Thor. I think it's also worth highlighting to our listeners that the Law Commission has published its final report on proposed reforms for the Arbitration Act which we expect to come into place later this year early next. Now those changes aren't radical but they didn't need to be, where the Act serves its purpose well. I will just take time to mention a few of the proposed changes. The Commission has introduced a new rule in relation to the governing law of an arbitration agreement. Of course, the arbitration agreement itself has a governing law provision, and questions over what law governs the arbitration agreement can arise when the law of the contract is different to the seat of the arbitration. So, for example, you may have a contract governed by French law, but the seat of the arbitration being London. The Law Commission has proposed that the governing law of the arbitration agreement is that of the law of the seat 
absent an express agreement to the contrary. So in my example, where the seat of the arbitration is London, English law would be the governing law of the arbitration agreement. And this is certainly welcomed as it should minimise satellite litigation on this subject. The next point to mention is the introduction of an express power for arbitrators to make an arbitral award on a summary basis. Therefore, an arbitrator will have the right to dispose of a matter at an early stage where there is no real prospect of success, saving time and costs. This should mean that where hopeless cases are commenced, for example, to place pressure on another party to settle a claim, it's an opportunity for such cases to be nipped in the bud and disposed of at an early stage on a summary basis. And this is certainly welcomed in the maritime context where sometimes we do see futile cases being commenced. And lastly, I just mentioned that the Law Commission has proposed that a duty that there be a duty of disclosure that arbitrators must disclose circumstances that might reasonably give rise to justifiable doubts as to their impartiality. And this disclosure should apply with respect to anything within the arbitrator's actual knowledge and also what the arbitrator ought reasonably to know. Where the maritime industry is a particularly small one and the London market is relatively small, this is a positive development so that arbitrators disclose any concerns that they may have over impartiality upfront and it is a continuing obligation upon them. There are other changes that have been proposed. If anyone would like to reach out to reach out to me, then please please feel free to do so and we can go through them. So I think, Thor, you've set out really helpfully where we are in terms of maritime arbitration and what this means and the potential changes that are now coming with the Arbitration Act. But Nick, it would be great if you would set the scene as to where we are in terms of the current position in the industry with regards to the new environmental regulations. Thanks, Antonia. That's right. There is a welter of environmental regulation, uh, largely focused on decarbonisation, coming down the track to shipping as part of the uh, IMO's recently revised initiative uh, for the global shipping industry to reach net zero by 2050. And uh, two key parts of that are the uh, EU uh, emissions trading system, uh, which shipping is being brought into, I think, with potentially significant implications in 2024, uh, and the uh, CII, the Carbon Intensity uh, Indicator, also falling under the IMO's uh, umbrella. Uh, Briefly, the EU uh, ETS regime will see obligations falling on uh, shipping companies, which is a term term in the regulations, uh, who will need to set up new compliance procedures, including opening an operator account at the uh, EU ETS registry uh, to hold their allowances, and ensuring that the balance is sufficient at the surrender date to cover each year's emissions from voyages that fall within the scheme. So what we're seeing is a a pressing need, I think, for the shipping industry, including owners, charters, managers and other stakeholders, to get to grips with the detail of ETS in order to ensure compliance from next year. Just unpacking that a bit, in each compliance year, companies will be required to surrender emissions allowances, EUAs, relating to their carbon emissions in that year. They'll be provided with a free allocation of EUAs to start with, and others uh, can be bought on the secondary market or on certain trading platforms. And in 2024, shipping companies will be required to surrender EUAs covering 40% 
of their intra-EU voyages and 20% of emissions on voyages uh, into or out of the EU. And those percentages are going to tighten up uh, from 2024 to 2026. Uh, so that will be a, an ever-tightening regime that we see. So discussions with existing and new counterparties in the charter market are needed. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that here uh, almost on a daily basis with our clients. And I think charter parties, which I, I'm going to come to you in a moment on, Antonia, they need to be reviewed very carefully in light of the new rules. And that might lead to tension between owners and charters uh, and possibly maritime arbitrations of the type Thor has outlined in the future. The second key regulation I mentioned is CII, the Carbon Intensity Indicator. That applies a grading of A to E to all ships. It measures the energy efficiency of a ship in terms of its carbon emissions. Uh, this year, 2023, is the year in which ships are measuring their emissions in order to receive a rating from 2024. This too is posing a number of challenges, fairly well documented in the industry. And whilst it might be premature to say that it will cause a, a marked or a, a definite increase in disputes and, and the maritime arbitrations that go with that, uh, the nature of CII means it's quite hard to slot into time chart parties. And I think that's creating uh, tensions. And as, as Antonia and Thor, you know, that's because the nature of those contracts sits rather oddly with the operational nature of uh, CII. And so... Uh, clauses are starting to appear in time charters that address this. BIMCO has produced a clause for both EUETS and CII, and we are seeing a lot of uh, requests across our desks from ship owners and charters in a number of different markets at this late-ish stage of 2023 to advise on those and to consider amendments that they think are suitable for use in their negotiations with charters. So um, that, that's the, the picture, the big picture, if you like, with what I see as the two main environmental regulations that are hitting shipping at the moment. It's a busy area of the market, and I think one to watch in terms of maritime arbitrations in future. But Antonia, do you want to give us uh, your your own take on that from your work? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I, I completely agree. And I do think that CII is one that is prone to disputes, primarily because of what you just mentioned, that is that you have owners who have the obligation to comply. It's the law. The IMO requires this. But I suppose compliance isn't solely within just the owner's control and it involves charters assisting the vessels achieve that rating due to due to the trading pattern. And your traditional time charters, your NYPE Clause 8 charters ordinarily have full, uh, you know, pretty much full discretion to give orders to the vessel. And now, arguably, CII curtails that right. And so I can see disputes arising. And certainly, I know uh, us, we as a team have already advised on cases where, uh, for example, a vessel is delivered with a lower rating than what was anticipated. So, charterers expecting to receive a vessel with a C rating, the vessel comes into the charter with a D rating. What do they do? Do they have a claim against owners? What would that claim be for? What are their obligations to read level with a C vessel or a D vessel? So you can just see that this is an area which is going to give rise to, uh, to, to potentially disputes. There's another area, again, involving uh, new developments that I just want to touch upon because I do think it's also going to impact the maritime arbitration landscape. And 
I know this has been in a discussion for a very long time, and I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but I do expect to see a rise in the use of electronic bills of lading. And this is because we now have the Electronic Trade Documents Act, ETDA 2023, and this comes into force later this month. And it provides that the use of electronic trade documents will be legally recognized and treated the same as a paper-based document. So an electronic bill of lading will therefore be recognized and upheld as a matter of English law. So with this in mind, the industry is, there is certainly more talk in the industry about the use of electronic bills of lading. And we see that BIMCO has launched the 25 by 25 pledge. This is a commitment by some of the world's biggest shippers in the bulk sector to target moving 25% of their annual trade volume for at least one commodity by using electronic bills of lading by 2025. And a large number of mining companies and bulk carriers have actually made this commitment. So to the extent that we do start seeing the industry adopting electronic bills of lading, I think the uh, disputes landscape around bills of lading will change. Because, of course, uh, ordinarily we see a lot of claims relating to delays, delays of bills of lading getting to the discharge port, And that would no longer be able to be used as an excuse for non-presentation of bill of lading because electronic bills of lading will be transferred instantaneously. There'll be a lot less need, I suspect, a lot less need for letters of indemnity. You know, letters of indemnity being provided for discharge against non-presentation of bills of lading might not be used anymore. It's also going to be harder to replicate bills, so therefore less cases involving duplicates bills being in circulation. So if we do see an acceleration in electronic bills of lading, which I think we will, I also expect the disputes landscape around bills of lading to change. So between the environmental regulations, uh, electronic bills of lading, I think the list that Thor set out uh, as to what would encompass maritime arbitration may well be expanded into new areas that we are now seeing in the industry. But watch this space. Thanks, Antonia. And thanks to Thor as well. That brings us to the end of today's podcast on maritime arbitration to mark World Maritime Day on the 28th of September. Thank you for listening. It's an exciting, interesting and topical area. And we hope you found our insights interesting and helpful. If you have any questions at all or wish to discuss any of the issues we've raised today, please do get in touch with me or Thor or Antonia or your usual contact at Reed Smith. Thank you very much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the ReadSmith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on ReadSmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. 
Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.